Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series, Show Us Your Glory. Uh, we've come to what I believe may be the heart and soul of this whole study and perhaps the most important part, which is part five. And for those that might just be joining us, this is a seven-part series. All of the notes, all of the previous recordings are available through our website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and would strongly encourage you, if you've missed any of those, to go back and catch up, because obviously we can't be reviewing everything each week. Uh, I will give a quick recap and try to launch right into the new material for tonight. So again, if you are following along in the outline, We've come to part five, that should be page 33 in the notes, and part five is entitled, The Glorious Gospel, The Glorious Church. Let me just begin by summarizing a couple of things. It, it is absolutely amazing that, yes, God does want to show us his glory. That's the title of these studies. And it was Moses' prayer way back in Exodus 33. He wasn't content with the experiences he had had, and he had some pretty amazing experiences, but he prayed a very bold prayer, which is the title of our Bible study series, Lord, show me your glory. There was something deep in his heart that was not yet satisfied. He wanted to see the glory of God. And interestingly, God's response was, you can't see my face. And we just completed part four, which is entitled, Glory in the Face of Christ. And we're going to be talking some more about that even in part five. But interesting that Exodus 33 ties right in with the New Testament that yes, God's greatest glory is manifested through the face of Jesus Christ. So the closer we get to Jesus, the more of God's radiance, the more of God's glory we're going to see. And we have been learning that the glory of God is a bit difficult to define, but it's really the weight of of all of God's character, his power, his wisdom, his love, his faithfulness, anything you can name about God, it's a part of that radiance that shines forth from his very being. And oftentimes in the scriptures, when God's glory was manifested, it was something visible. People saw it. It's not just an imagination or some spiritual revelation in the mind. They actually saw something. They saw the radiance of God. God is light. God is a consuming fire. And he can manifest himself in very visible ways. And we've seen numerous examples of that throughout the scriptures. So now, we've come to the New Testament... We saw in part four that 
God has chosen now to reveal the fullness of His glory through His Son, Jesus Christ. And John and the other apostles were able to write about their experience and say, We saw His glory. The Word of God became flesh, tabernacled amongst us, and we beheld. We, we studied up, up close and personal. We saw the glory of God. Now, in part five, we're going to focus on two particular aspects, the gospel and the church. And by no coincidence, we're going to see both of them are glorious. This gospel that you and I have believed in, this gospel that you and I preach to our friends, to our neighbors, and to all creation, it is called the glorious gospel. And the ultimate outcome of the gospel being preached is that God would have a glorious church. Very interesting. And we're going to begin with a few background scriptures, and then we're going to turn once again to very important portion of scripture found in 2 Corinthians 4, which we used in part 4, and we'll be returning to it here again. In Paul's writings to the churches, he, of course, often talks about the gospel, his calling to preach the gospel, his passion, his zeal, his burden to share the gospel anywhere, anyhow, with anyone. It was a, a driving motivation in Paul's life. He wanted to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. In Romans 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. But oftentimes, when he refers to the gospel, I want you to notice the connection between the gospel and glory. So, the gospel that Paul and the other apostles in the early church preached, it was not just a gospel of believe in Jesus and you can escape hell. Thank God we can. That's part of the good news. But it's not the full gospel. And the fullness of the gospel, Paul tells us, is a glorious gospel. It's a gospel of glory. In other words, the good news of Jesus is intimately connected with what we've been studying throughout this series, the glory of God. You cannot take it away or separate it from the gospel message. And I think we'll see tonight, we've been hinting at this, but we're going to look it square in the face tonight. The, the heart and soul of the gospel is to restore us to the glory of God. All right, here we go. 2 Thessalonians 2, we'll start there, verse 14. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14. Paul says, He called you to this through our gospel, 
that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that. Our whole calling to God and to God through the gospel is for what purpose? That you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 11. Paul refers to it as the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me, or the gospel of glory. Either one is correct. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4, where we've already looked, verses 3 to 6, I can't emphasize this enough, and let's read it first, and I'll comment more on this. Satan doesn't care if people are religious. He doesn't even care if they're philosophical. But he is determined to prevent people from seeing the full gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the glory of Christ. Note those words now in this passage that we've been looking at, and we're going to dig even deeper tonight. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, some Bibles say hidden, even if our gospel is hidden, it is hidden to those who are perishing. The God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, let's go back and look at this a little more carefully. We have two groups of people here, believers and unbelievers, the saved and the perishing, or the lost. The characteristic that all of the lost share in common, of course, they're perishing. But what they all have in common, they've been blinded. They have been blinded, not in their eyes. They may have 20-20 vision. The blindness has come into their minds. Elsewhere in Romans 1, Paul talks about how when man fell away from God, Darkness filled his mind. His mind was overtaken with darkness and futility. Vanity took over the mind of the unbeliever. He's separated from light, separated from God. And this is Satan's number one work. His primary task in the earth today is blinding minds. He's 
starting very early now, in preschool, in kindergarten, in the early grades of elementary school. He targets the minds of our children, blinding their minds so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He fills their minds with thoughts of evolution, thoughts of selfishness, self-will, rebellion. I can do this my own way. I don't need to surrender to God. And so, this is very important. If you and I are believers, then we're in the other camp. Thank God we've been able to see something. What is it that we can see? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Note all of those words. Each one of those words is important. Light, gospel, glory, and Christ. So, when an unbeliever has been blinded by Satan, the God of this world, he may hear preaching from the pulpit, on the radio, on television, from you and from me, but it really doesn't make any sense. The Bible says that it's foolishness to those who are perishing. They hear the words, but they just can't grasp it in the mind. And notice the words that Paul chooses here, blinded the minds of unbelievers. So if the blindness is in the mind, then light has to come into the mind. Light often speaks of understanding, so that we can understand the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We saw in Hebrews 1, he is the radiance. The Son is the radiance of all that the Father is and does. He, he radiates the Father. In John 14, one of the disciples uh, came to Jesus and said, Show us the Father. In other words, we want to see God. Jesus' response to Thomas was, You already have. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was a, a, a direct and perfect expression manifesting the radiance of the glory of his Father. So, he's the image of God, and that's why Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Jesus Christ. We're just servants for Jesus' sake. And then, key words in verse 6, we talked about this last time, Paul jumps all the way back to Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. And he ties it into this whole discussion about the gospel and the light of God's glory. And he says this, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, or it could also be translated into darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, and in the context that light comes through the gospel. Unbelievers can't see the light of the gospel. God commands light to shine into our darkness when we hear the good news of Christ, when we hear the gospel. All right? 
So, he commands light to shine into the darkness that once filled our hearts and minds, and made his light shine in our hearts, note these words, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You can't separate the gospel from the knowledge of God's glory. What we are studying in these uh, series of studies here is not some interesting topic for us to look at. This is at the very center of God's redemption. His purpose in preaching the gospel is to bring us to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. He wants us to know the glory of God. And where do we know that? In the face of Christ. So, the gospel is preached, light shines into our hearts and minds, the darkness is dispelled, and what results is we now know the glory of God. Why? Because we are looking into the face of Jesus Christ. Now, the gospel, in its simplicity, is this. Christ, the perfect Son of God, died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, and on the third day he rose. Sounds very simple, doesn't it? It's supposed to be. The gospel is meant to be simple. So simple, a three-year-old child can understand it, accept it, and become a believer. Paul preaches his gospel, in a nutshell, for us, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. This is the gospel that he was preaching in all of the churches. Listen carefully. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. Wouldn't you like to have been in one of those gatherings where Paul preached? I would. I would love to have heard how he did it, what he said. But we have a little insight here because he's reminding them what he did preach. Here's what Paul preached to the Corinthians. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. So, we must respond to the gospel when it is preached. We must receive it. We must believe it. We receive it by faith, of course. And, he says, on which you have taken your stand. We actually begin to build our whole life on that gospel. That's the foundation of our life. That's where we take our stand. Verse 2, By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. You know, sometimes people argue this thing, once saved, always saved. Um, I like to word it a little differently. 
I like Paul's words here. As long as you're holding firmly to the word I preached, you're saved. If you no longer hold firmly to it, then he says you have believed in vain, to no avail. It's had no effect on your life. I don't know how you can say you're still saved if you've believed in vain. So salvation is an active relationship. It's not a one-time thing. Oh, I accepted Jesus, you know, with tears running down my face at the altar, June 12th. 1947, and I'm saved ever since. Well, maybe, maybe not. Are you still believing? Paul says, if, that's a condition, <clears throat> you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. I, personally, am very happy to tell you I'm still holding firmly to the same gospel I heard 42 years ago. And therefore, with great confidence and assurance, I can say, I'm saved tonight. I'm saved. But tomorrow, I have to keep holding firmly to the Word. I have to keep believing and taking my stand on that Word. So he says, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the Word I preach to you. Otherwise, it's all in vain. Verse 3, what did he preach? For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. First importance. What is it? That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's it? Yep. That's simple. Christ died. Christ buried, Christ raised. Those three things are the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. God wants us to understand, though, from the previous passage in 2 Corinthians 4, that the purpose of that gospel, Christ died, Christ buried, Christ raised from the scriptures, is to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He wants us to see the light of the glory of God. Now, way back in part one, our introduction, I just touched on this passage, and I promised that we were coming back to it, because it is so so important. And I have to be honest with you, this was one of the first Bible verses I ever learned. I've used it thousands of times in preaching the gospel. And it is only recently that I have really begun to understand it in a deeper way, and particularly in the context of our present study the glory of God. I'm talking about Romans 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's found in almost every gospel message, almost every gospel tract. It's used universally to show what happened to man 
in his fall. He sinned and he fell. But I never paid too much attention to the exact words, fall from what? Fall short of the glory of God. This scripture, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, Paul very methodically, line upon line, precept upon precept, he develops in the book of Romans the most exquisite exposition of the gospel, the good news of salvation and redemption. And this verse is the centerpiece of his whole exposition of redemption. Now, let's add the next verse. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned. He's been developing that in Romans 3. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. There's no exception. Everybody has this problem of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, several months back, I really began to ponder this scripture, and I realized there was something puzzling about it. It didn't make sense. Logically, Paul's talking about righteousness, justification by faith, being made righteous. There's none righteous, no, not one, but by faith in Christ, you can be made righteous. So, it would make logical sense for verse 23 to say something like, all have sinned and fallen short of God's righteousness. That would make logical sense. Or, all have sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standard. That would also make sense. All have sinned and fallen short of God's morality. Any of those statements would make logical sense, but honestly, what Paul has written here isn't logical. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you ask yourself, what does glory have to do with this? It's hard to understand. We have to dig deeper. And a couple of words here that we need to understand the original meanings so that we can dig a little deeper. The word sinned, sin or sinned, throughout the New Testament is the Greek word which means to miss the mark to miss the mark, and so not share in the prize. It's the word to err, to sin, or to trespass. But the essence of the word, whenever we're reading our New Testament and we come across the word sin, sinned, or sins, it's some part of this root word to miss the mark. 
And the idea is you're, you're playing some kind of a game or you're in a contest, and only if you hit the mark do you win the prize. If you hit the bullseye on the target, you win. If you miss the bullseye, you've missed the mark, and therefore you've sinned. I think I shared with you a couple of months ago, uh, I was invited with Pastor Tom down to Orlando to preach in the church there, and I was sharing on this very theme, missing the mark. What is the mark? It's the glory of God. And on the way down in the plane, God kept telling me to use a demonstration of a dartboard and actually throw the darts at the board, and if you're a pretty good shot, that's all right, but unless you hit the bullseye, you've sinned. And this thing was, it kept coming to me, get a dartboard, get a dartboard, so that you can demonstrate this. Well, as soon as I got on the ground there, one of my first questions to the pastor was, do you have a dartboard in the church? Now, I have preached in hundreds of churches. I have never been in a church that had a dartboard. But his face lit up and he said, Pastor, I think we have one. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, let me check, but I think we have a dartboard. Long story short, they had uh, cleared out a whole house full of things that had been left behind and many of these items were brand new items still in the package and they were going to be thrown away and his job was to dispose of all this stuff. Well, one of them, lo and behold, was a brand new dartboard still in the original packaging had never been opened. So we set up the dartboard. I demonstrated shooting the darts at the target and of course none of us could hit the bullseye so all of us were sinners. We all missed the mark. And if you can follow me here, this is so important. This is a profound revelation Paul is sharing with us. The bullseye in life is the glory of God. That's the bullseye. You may hit a lot of other targets. You may become rich, famous. You may have a big worldwide ministry. You can fill in the blanks. You may hit all kinds of other marks and and goals, and get lots of prizes, but Paul says the bullseye is the glory of God. And whenever you and I are missing that bullseye, we're sinning. Sin is to miss the mark. The other part of Romans 3.23 further confirms this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That phrase, fall short of, means to be inferior, to be deficient, to be destitute, to come behind, to lack, to suffer, or to be in need or want. I think you get the picture. Somehow, you're not measuring up to the mark. You're falling short, maybe just a little bit, but you're still 
falling short of the mark. Again, falling short of what? The glory of God. So, the gospel of Christ has not truly accomplished and fulfilled its total purpose in your life or mine unless it restores us to the glory of God. That's the mark. That's the goal. That is the bullseye. So the purpose of redemption is to restore man back to the glory of God. And to understand that, we have to go back to Genesis 3 and study the fall of Adam and Eve. What happened in their fall? What was it that they actually became deficient in? Or what was it that caused them to become destitute of the glory of God? You see, the grand and ultimate purpose of God that's revealed through the gospel is not just, and I'm not minimizing this, but it's not just pardon for sin. That's great. Praise God for sins forgiven. It's not just that we can escape the wrath and the judgment of God. Hallelujah, that's great good news. But if that's as far as we go, we're still missing the mark. God has more that he wants to reveal. God has more that he wants to do. That's why it's called the gospel, the good news of the glory of God. God's ultimate purpose through the, through the gospel is to restore fallen man, started with Adam, we all inherited it, to, to restore fallen, sinful man from his destitute state back to the image and glory of God that he lost in the Garden of Eden. Now, we went deeper on this part in the introduction. I'm not going to go over all that again, but you can look back at your notes for part one. We, we went quite in depth there at what happened in the fall. Man fell away from God, but he also lost the glorious image that he had when he was created in his sinless perfection. See, God made man different from the monkeys, the apes, all the other animals. He's not just a higher evolved creature. He's made in the image of God. We are image bearers. That image became tarnished, twisted, perverted after the fall, and somehow we then began to miss the mark, fall short of the glory that God intended for man to have. Look further along in the book of Romans and notice how Paul is still including this in his exposition of this glorious gospel. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. 
And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. So, this is a strong word. Not only was it a part of God's purpose and plan, he predestined this to happen. What is his predestined plan for every believer in Jesus Christ? Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Conformed to the likeness, the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many, many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. He went into justification in Romans 3, 4, and 5 in great depth. But he goes beyond that now. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You can't separate this from the gospel. It's part and parcel of the good news. Praise God, we've been justified by faith. But the same faith is that we are now glorified by God. He's predestined us to be restored to that glorious image, the likeness of his Son. If that's not clear, the next verse, I think, will make it even clearer. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness. There it is again. Transformed into His likeness. With what? With ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, the Gospel is not complete unless we are also preaching this part of it. Yes, there's pardon for sin. Yes, there's justification by faith. But there's also glorification. God has predestined that through the Gospel of His Son, we can be transformed back into that glorious image and likeness of His own Son with, and as the process is now going on, with ever-increasing glory. I like that word, ever-increasing. More glory than last week. More glory than a month ago. It's getting more glorious we're increasing in glory. Why? God predestined it. 
It sounds rather arrogant for us to talk about being conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, but we didn't make this up. It's the gospel. It's included in the glorious gospel. And now, let me read these words again from 2 Corinthians 4. No wonder Satan is so actively trying to blind the minds of unbelievers lest they can see this. 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6 again. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Important words there, image of God. It's the glorious image of God that is a part of this restoration process. Verse 5, We do not preach ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You know, you can only see a person's face when you're fairly close to them. That's why we have to draw near to Christ. As we get closer to him, We get closer to his face, and God begins to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, (coughs) excuse me, in the face of Christ. If you and I want to see the glory of God, God has chosen now how that will happen. We will see it through the face of Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. Get closer to Jesus. Sit at his feet and learn of him. Study his word. Worship him. Pray. Fast. Tell the Lord, I want to get closer, Lord. i got to see your face. That's where we will begin to see the glory of God. God demonstrated his love on the cross. And it was there on the cross that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. And then, through his resurrection, he is now ruling, reigning, triumphant, and soon coming King. The radiance, the full radiance of the Father. We've read these verses before, but I think we need to come back to them now. In John 17, Jesus' final prayer on earth, after he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done, and he prayed for his followers that they would be kept and all of that earlier in this prayer, his final request John 17, 20-24. My prayer is not for them alone, not just for Peter, James, and John. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That means you. That means me. He's praying for all of us, all 
future believers are included in this prayer. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Look at verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me. What a strange thing to be talking about in this final prayer. But it's at the forefront of his mind. This is the most important thing on Jesus' heart now as he's praying this final prayer. Father, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Have loved them even as you have loved me? Is that possible that Father God loves me with the same equal love that he has for his only begotten Son? Apparently. Verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and here it comes, fasten your seatbelts, and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. This is Christ's final prayer for us. What does he want? He wants us to have glory and to see glory. He wants us to spend all eternity with him where he is. Where is he tonight? He is in glory. And he wants us to join him there so that we can see his glory. Not just a glimpse like Peter, James, and John had on the Mount of Transfiguration, but to see his full glory for all eternity. I don't know about you, but I like it when Jesus prays, because I know the Father is going to answer him. And every time I read this prayer, I say, Father, you have to answer this prayer, because your own son prayed this one. And I say, Amen to it. And therefore, let it come to pass. Give us your glory. Make us one. Take us to the place where Jesus is, and let us see his glory. Stephen, the very first martyr in the early church, he saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus. Now the Bible tells us after he shed his blood and made atonement for all of our sins, after he was dead, buried, and rose again, he ascended back to the Father and sat down at the right hand of God. But I want you to notice something very interesting in this passage where Stephen is being put to death. Acts 7, 55 and 56. It says, But Stephen, 
full of the Holy Spirit. He's being stoned to death. And hallelujah, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. He looked up to heaven. He's not looking at the persecutors. He's not looking at the stones. He's looking up. He's looking up to heaven, and he's seeing the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, you can't prove this, but some people believe that every time a martyr gives his life for the cause of Christ, Jesus stands up to welcome him. It may be. It may be. He certainly stood up for the first one. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen, much to the chagrin of his persecutors, he cries out, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This gospel, my friends, is not just believe in Jesus and you can avoid hell. It's not just believe in Jesus and he'll forgive all your sins. All that's true, but it's so much more. God wants to fill you with his glory, fill you with his Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. He wants to reveal himself in you, through you. He wants you to see glory through the face of Jesus Christ, just like Stephen saw. You may not be a martyr, but you can still see glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And we're going to close here, and what we're going to see next time is the result of people believing in the gospel of glory is the fulfillment of God's great purpose, which is to have a church, to have a gathering of people, the body of Christ, and no surprise, we will find in Ephesians 5 that this church that forms as a result of the gospel of glory is called a glorious church. It's the bride of Christ. She also radiates the glory of Christ. Just as Christ radiates the glory of his Father, so this church in the earth today, is a glorious church. And Isaiah prophesied about this. He prophesied about a glory coming upon the people of God. In Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3, many believe that this, like a lot of prophecies, particularly in Isaiah, they have a dual fulfillment. They're fulfilled both in the church and they're also fulfilled ultimately in the kingdom of Israel. I happen to believe that this is one of those prophecies that will have a dual fulfillment. It's happening in our day now with the church, and it will happen later on with the kingdom of Israel in Jerusalem. Isaiah 60, 
verses 1 to 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. By the way, sounds just like Genesis 1. Darkness, everything's void and formless, and what does God do? He speaks and commands light into that darkness. The very scripture Paul quoted in 2 Corinthians 4 when he talks about the light of the gospel of glory. Verse 2 again. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Next time, we're going to go deeper with this, but understand that when you and I believe in Jesus Christ, we are believing a glorious gospel. And God has predestined to give us His glory, to change us, into the very image and likeness of His Son, reflecting the Lord's glory. Note these words very, very carefully. The Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears, appears over you. How do we know that it's something visible? Well, the next verse makes no sense otherwise. Nations will come to your light. Where are those nations? They're in darkness. But what they're going to see in these last days is the glory of God coming upon the church. And friends, this is something we must be praying for daily now. God, make your church glorious. Let your glory Come upon your people in the midst of all this darkness, perversion, and killing, and atheism, and drug addiction, and all the rest. In the midst of all this darkness, Lord, you promised that light and glory were coming upon your church. Make it a glorious church. Let your glory appear upon your people, just as it did in the face of Moses. We saw that. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face was shining with glory. They had to put a veil over his face. And we're going to look again at that whole thing next time. God wants us to shine in these last days. He wants us to stand out. He wants the the nations, the people that are in their darkness and their sin and their confusion, he wants them to see something in your life and mine and come to that light. Don't be surprised. People are going to come to you at your work. They're going to come to you on the train or on the bus and say, man, there's something on you. You have a glory or a glow. You have a light on your life. Can you tell me what it is? Can you help me find that light in my life? Well, absolutely. 
Come and follow me, and I'll show you where it is. It's found in the gospel. And that gospel will bring you to the face of Jesus Christ. And that's where God's glory is manifested. We'll pause there, come back next week, and pick it up here with the glorious church. And then a part of the glorious church is the ministry that he's given to the church. Three guesses what kind of a ministry it is. You got it. It's a glorious ministry. Glorious gospel, glorious church, glorious ministry. Close with me in prayer now. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name that you love us with the same everlasting love that you have for your own Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, you have chosen, you've planned, you've purposed, and even a stronger word we read tonight, you've predestined that we should be glorified, that we should be partakers of your glory, that we should be transformed into the image and likeness of your Son, that we should be able to see your glory shining through the face of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you prayed, Father, I want them to be with me where I am so that they can see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me. And Lord, we say amen to that. Show us your glory. Fill us with your glory. Fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah in these last days as the world becomes darker, more confused, more lost. Lord, let light come upon your church. Let the glory of the Lord rise upon us. Let the glory of God appear over us that those who are in darkness can come out of darkness into your marvelous light. God, raise up a glorious church. Raise up a glorious ministry of the gospel in these last days. A ministry of power, a ministry of grace and truth, a ministry of glory. We give you praise and honor tonight. We surrender our lives to you in the name of Jesus. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would continue to work in us and through us as he prepares us for that final day when Jesus comes in glory. God bless each and every one that has joined us tonight, even those that might be joining us in the future through the broadcast or the recordings. Bless them. Keep them as the apple of your eye. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.